If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful, night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be starting another new story, Emily of New Moon, by L. M. Montgomery, famed author of Anne of Green Gables. So let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften, as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter One The House in the Hollow The house in the hollow was a mile from anywhere, so Maywood people said. It was situated in a grassy little dale looking as if it had never been built like other houses, but had grown up there like a big brown mushroom. It was reached by a long green lane and almost hidden from view by an encircling growth of young birches. No other house could be seen from it, although the village was just over the hill. Ellen Green said it was the most lonesome place in the world and vowed that she wouldn't stay there a day if it wasn't that she pitied the child. Emily didn't know she was being pitied and didn't know what lonesomeness meant. She had plenty of company. There was Father and Mike and Saucy Sal. The wind woman was always around, and there were the trees, Adam and Eve, and the rooster pine, and all the friendly lady birches. And there was the flash, too. She never knew when it might come, and the possibility of it kept her in a thrill and expectant. Emily had slipped away in the chilly twilight for a walk. She remembered that walk very vividly all her life, perhaps because of the certain eerie beauty that was in it, perhaps because the flash came for the first time in weeks, more likely because of what happened after she came home from it. 
It had been a dull, cold day in early May, threatening to rain but never raining. Father had lain on the sitting room lounge all day. He had coughed a good deal, and he had not talked much to Emily, which was a very unusual thing for him. Most of the time he lay with his hands clasped under his head and his large, sunken, dark blue eyes fixed dreamily and unseeingly on the cloudy sky that was visible between the boughs of the two big spruces in the front yard, Adam and Eve. They always called those spruces that, because of a whimsical resemblance Emily had traced between their position, with reference to a small apple tree between them, and that of Adam and Eve, and the tree of knowledge in that old-fashioned picture in one of Ellen Green's books. The tree of knowledge looked exactly like the squat little apple tree, and Adam and Eve stood up on either side as stiffly and rigidly as did the spruces. Emily wondered what father was thinking of but she never bothered him with questions when his cough was bad. She only wished she had somebody to talk to. Ellen Green wouldn't talk that day either. She did nothing but grunt, and grunts meant that Ellen was disturbed about something. She had grunted last night after the doctor had whispered to her in the kitchen and she had grunted when she gave Emily a bedtime snack of bread and molasses. Emily did not like bread and molasses, but she ate it because she did not want to hurt Ellen's feelings. It was not often that Ellen allowed her anything to eat before going to bed, and when she did, it meant that for some reason or other she wanted to confer a special favour. Emily expected the grunting attack would wear off overnight, as it generally did, but it had not, so no company was to be found in Ellen. Not that there was a great deal to be found at any time. Douglas Starr had once, in a fit of exasperation, told Emily that Ellen Green was a fat, lazy old thing of no importance, and Emily, whenever she looked at Ellen after that, thought the description fitted her to a hair. So Emily had curled herself up in the ragged, comfortable old wing chair and read The Pilgrim's Progress all the afternoon. Emily loved The Pilgrim's Progress. Many a time had she walked the straight and narrow path with Christian and Christiana, although she never liked Christiana's adventures 
half as well as Christians. For one thing, there was always such a crowd with Christiana. She had not half the fascination of that solitary, intrepid figure who faced all alone the shadows of the dark valley and encounter the Apollyon. Darkness and hobgoblins were nothing when you had plenty of company, but to be alone, ah, Emily shivered with the delicious horror of it. When Ellen announced that supper was ready, Douglas Starr told Emily to go out to it. I don't want anything tonight. I'll just lie here and rest. And when you come in again, we'll have a real talk, Elfkin. He smiled up at her, his old, beautiful smile, with the love behind it that Emily always found so sweet. She ate her supper quite happily though it wasn't a good supper. The bread was soggy and her egg was underdone, but for a wonder she was allowed to have both Saucy Sal and Mike sitting on each side of her, and Ellen only grunted when Emily fed them wee bits of bread and butter. Mike had such a cute way of sitting up on his haunches and catching bits in his paws and saucy Sal had her trick of touching Emily's ankle with an almost human touch when her turn was too long in coming. Emily loved them both but Mike was her favourite. He was a handsome dark grey cat with huge owl-like eyes and he was so soft and fat and fluffy. Sal was always thin. No amount of feeding put any flesh on her bones. Emily liked her, but never cared to cuddle or stroke her because of her thinness. Yet there was a sort of weird beauty about her that appealed to Emily. She was grey and white, very white and very sleek, with a long, pointed face, very long ears and very green eyes. She was a redoubtable fighter, and strange cats were vanquished in one round. The fearless little spitfire would even attack dogs and rout them utterly. Emily loved her pussies. She had brought them up herself, as she proudly said. They had been given to her when they were kittens by her Sunday school teacher. A living present is so nice, she told Ellen, because it keeps on getting nicer all the time. But she worried considerably, because saucy Sal didn't have kittens. I don't know why she doesn't, she complained to Ellen Green. Most cats seem to have more kittens than they know what to do with.
After supper, Emily went in and found that her father had fallen asleep. She was very glad of this. She knew he had not slept much for two nights, but she was a little disappointed that they were not going to have that real talk. Real talks with father were always such delightful things. But next best would be a walk, a lovely, all-by-your-lonesome walk through the grey evening of the young spring. It was so long since she had a walk. You put on your hood, and mind you scoop back if it starts to rain, warned Ellen. You can't monkey with colds the way some kids can. Why can't I? Emily asked rather indignantly. Why must she be debarred from monkeying with colds if other children could? It wasn't fair. But Ellen only grunted. Emily muttered under her breath for her own satisfaction. You are a fat, old thing of no importance, and slipped upstairs to get her hood, rather reluctantly, for she loved to run bareheaded. She put the faded blue hood on over her long, heavy braid of glossy, jet black hair, and smiled clumsily at her reflection in the little greenish glass. The smile began at the corners of her lips and spread over her face in a slow, subtle, very wonderful way, as Douglas Starr often thought. It was her dead mother's smile, the thing that had caught and held him long ago when he had first seen Juliet Murray. It seemed to be Emily's only physical inheritance from her mother. In all else, he thought, she was like the stars, in her large, purplish-grey eyes, with their very long lashes and black brows, in her high, white forehead, too high for beauty, in the delicate modelling of her pale, oval face, and sensitive mouth, in the little ears that were pointed just a wee bit to show that she was kin to tribes of Elfland. I'm going for a walk with the wind woman, dear, said Emily. I wish I could take you too. Do you ever get out of that room, I wonder? The wind woman is going to be out in the fields tonight. She is tall and misty, with thin, grey, silky clothes blowing all about her, and wings like a bat's, only you can see through them, and shining eyes like stars looking through her long, loose hair. She can fly, but tonight, she will walk with me all over the fields. She's a great friend of mine, the wind woman is. I've known her ever since I was six. 
We're old, old friends, but not quite so old as you and I, little Emily in the glass. We've been friends always, haven't we? With a blown kiss to little Emily in the glass, Emily out of the glass was off. The wind woman was waiting for her outside, ruffling the little spears of stripped grass that was sticking up stiffly in the bed under the sitting room window, tossing the big boughs of Adam and Eve, whispering among the misty green branches of the birches, teasing the rooster pine behind the house. It really did look like an enormous, ridiculous rooster with a huge, bunchy tail and a head thrown back to crow. It was so long since Emily had been out for a walk that she was half crazy with the joy of it. The winter had been so stormy and the snow so deep that she was never allowed out. April had been a month of rain and wind, so on this May evening she felt like a released prisoner. Where should she go? Down the brook? Or over the fields to the spruce barrens? Emily chose the latter. She loved the spruce barrens, away at the further end of the long, sloping pasture. That was a place where magic was made. She came more fully into her fairy birthright there than in any other place. Nobody who saw Emily skimming over the bare field would have envied her. She was little and pale and poorly clad. Sometimes she shivered in her thin jacket, yet a queen might have gladly given a crown for her visions, her dreams of wonder. The brown, frosted grasses under her feet were velvet piles. The old, mossy, gnarled, half-dead spruce tree, under which she paused for a moment to look up into the sky, was a marble column in a palace of the gods. The far dusky hills were the rampart of a city of wonders, and for companions she had all the fairies of the countryside, for she could believe in them here. The fairies of the white clover and satin catskins, the little green folk of the grass, the elves of the young fir trees, sprites of wind and wild fern and thistledown. Anything might happen there, everything might come true, and the barrens were such a splendid place in which to play hide and seek with the wind woman. She was so very real there. If you could just spring quickly enough around a little cluster of spruces, only you never could, you would see her as well as feel her and hear her. 
there she was. That was the sweep of her grey cloak. No, she was laughing up in the very top of the taller trees. And the chase was on again, till, at once, it seemed as if the wind woman were gone, and the evening was bathed in a wonderful silence. And there was a sudden rift in the curdled cloud westwards, and a lovely, pale, pinky-green lake of sky with a new moon in it. Emily stood and looked at it with clasped hands and her little black head upturned. She must go home and write down a description of it in the yellow account book where the last thing written had been, Mike's biography. It would hurt her with its beauty until she wrote it down. Then she would read it to father. She must not forget how the tips of the green on the hill came out like fine black lace across the edge of the pinky green sky. And then, for one glorious, supreme moment, came the flash. Emily called it that, although she felt that the name didn't exactly describe it. It couldn't be described, not even to father, who always seemed a little puzzled by it. Emily never spoke of it to anyone else. It had always seemed to Emily, ever since she could remember, that she was very, very near to a world of wonderful beauty. Between it and herself, hung only a thin curtain. She could never draw the curtain aside, but sometimes, just for a moment, a wind fluttered it, and then it was as if she caught a glimpse of that enchanting realm beyond. Only a glimpse, and heard a note of unearthly music. This moment came rarely, went swiftly, leaving her breathless with the inexpressible delight of it. She could never recall it, never summon it, never pretend it, but the wonder of it stayed with her for days. It never came twice with the same thing. Tonight the dark boughs against that far-off sky had given it, it had come with a high, wild note of wind in the night, with a shadow wave over a ripe field, with a grey bird lightning on her window sill in a storm, with the singing of Holy, Holy, Holy in church, with a glimpse of the kitchen fire when she had come home on a dark autumn night, with the spirit like blue of ice palms on a twilt pane, with a fallacious new word when she was writing down a description of something, and always when the flash came to her, Emily felt that life 
was a wonderful, mysterious thing of persistent beauty. She scuttled back to the house in the hollow, through the gathering twilight, all agog to get home and write down her description before the memory picture of what she had seen grew a little blurred. She knew just how she would begin it. The sentence seemed to shape itself in her mind. The hill called to me, and something in me called back to it. She found Ellen Green waiting for her on the sunken front doorstep. Emily was so full of happiness that she loved everything at that moment, even fat things of no importance. She flung her arms around Ellen's knees and hugged them. Ellen looked down gloomily into the rapt little face where excitement had kindled a faint wild rose flush and said with a ponderous sigh, Do you know that your pa has only a week or two more to live? Chapter 2 A Watch in the Night Emily stood quite still and looked up at Ellen's broad, red face, as still as if she had been suddenly turned to stone. She felt as if she had. She was as stunned as if Ellen had struck her a physical blow. The colour faded out of her little face, and her pupils dilated until they swallowed up the iridides and turned her eyes into pools of blackness. The effect was so startling that even Ellen Green felt uncomfortable. I'm telling you this because I think it's high time you were told, she said. I've been at your pa's for four months, but he's kept putting it off and off. I says to him, says I, you know how hard she takes things, and if you drop off suddenly some day, it'll almost kill her if she hasn't been prepared. It's your duty to prepare her, and he says, there's time enough yet, Ellen but he's never said a word. And when the doctor told me last night that the end might come any time now, I just made up my mind that I'd do what was right and drop a hint to prepare you. Law's a massy child. Don't look like that. You'll be looked after. Your ma's people will see to that on account of the Murray pride, if for no other reason. They won't let one of their own blood starve or go to strangers, even if they have always hated your pa like Pison. You'll have a good home, better than you've ever had here. You'll needn't worry a mite. As for your pa, you ought to be thankful to see him at rest. He's been dying 
inch by inch for the last five years. He's kept it from you, but he's been a great sufferer. Folks say his heart broke when your ma died. It came on him so suddenly like. She was only sick three days. That's why I want you to know what's coming, so you won't be all upset when it happens. For mercy's sake, Emily Birdstar, don't stand there staring like that. You give me the creeps. You ain't the first child that's been left an orphan, and you won't be the last. Try and be sensible, and don't go pestering your pa about what I've told you, mind that. Come you in now, out of the damp, and I'll give you a cookie for you go to bed. Ellen stepped down as if to take the child's hand. The power of motion returned to Emily. She must scream if Ellen ever touched her. With one sudden, sharp, bitter little cry, she avoided Ellen's hand, darted through the door, and fled up the staircase. Ellen shook her head and waddled back to her kitchen. Emily held Mike tightly in her arms as she sat in the darkness on her little cot bed. Amid her agony and desolation, there was a certain comfort in the feel of his soft fur and round, velvety head. Emily was not crying. She stared straight into the darkness, trying to face the awful thing Ellen had told her. She did not doubt it. Something told her it was true. Why couldn't she die too? She couldn't go on living without father. If I was God, I wouldn't let things like this happen, she said. She felt it was very wicked of her to say such a thing. Ellen had told her once that it was the wickedest thing anyone could do to find fault with God. But she didn't care. Perhaps if she were wicked enough, God would strike her dead, and then she and father could keep on being together. But nothing happened. Only Mike got tired of being held so tightly and squirmed away. It surely couldn't be less than an hour since she had been playing with the wind woman in the barrens and looking at the new moon in the pinky green sky. The flash will never come again. It can't, she thought. But Emily had inherited certain things from her fine old ancestors. The power to fight, to suffer, to pity, to love very deeply, to rejoice, to endure. These things were all in her and looked out at you through her purplish grey eyes. Her heritage of endurance came to her aid now, and bore her up. She must not let father know what Ellen had told her. It might hurt him, 
she must keep it all to herself and love father, oh so much, in what little time she had left with him. She heard him cough in the room below. She must be in bed when he came up. She undressed as swiftly as her cold fingers permitted and crept into the little cot bed which stood across the open window. The voices of the gentle spring night called to her all unheeded, unheard the wind woman whistled by the eaves, for the fairies dwelt only in the kingdom of happiness, having no soul, they cannot enter the kingdom of sorrow. Winkums, are you asleep? No, whispered Emily. Are you sleepy, small dear? No, no, not sleepy. Douglas Starr took her hand and held it tightly. Then we'll have our talk, honey. I can't sleep either. I want to tell you something. Oh, I know it, I know it, burst out Emily. Oh, father, I know it. Ellen told me. Douglas Starr was silent for a moment. Then he said under his breath, The old fool, the fat old fool, as if Ellen's fatness was an added aggravation of her folly. Again, for the last time, Emily hoped. Perhaps it was all a dreadful mistake. Just some more of Ellen's fat foolishness. It, it isn't true, is it, father? She whispered. Emily, child, said her father. I can't lift you up. I haven't the strength. But climb up and sit on my knee, in the old way. Emily slipped out of bed and got on her father's knee. He wrapped the old dressing gown about her and held her close with his face against hers. Dear little child, little beloved Emily Kin, it is quite true, he said. I meant to tell you myself tonight, and now that old absurdity of an Ellen has told you, brutally, I suppose and hurt you dreadfully. She has the brain of a hen and the sensibility of a cow. My jackals sit on her grandmother's grave. I wouldn't have hurt you, dear. Emily fought something down that wanted to choke her. Father, I can't, I can't bear it. Yes, you can and will. You will live because there is something for you to do, I think. You have my gift, along with something I never had. You will succeed where I failed, Emily. I haven't been able to do much for you, sweetheart, but I've done what I could. I've taught you something, I think, in spite of Ellen Green. Emily, do you remember your mother? 
just a little, here and there, like lovely bits of dreams. You were only four when she died. I've never talked much to you about her. I couldn't. But I'm going to tell you all about her tonight. It doesn't hurt me to talk of her now. I'll see her soon again. You don't look like her, Emily. Only when you smile. For the rest, you're like your namesake, my mother. When you were born, I wanted to call you Juliet too. But your mother wouldn't. She said if we called you Juliet, then I'd soon take to calling her mother to distinguish between you. And she couldn't endure that. She said her aunt Nancy had once said to her, The first time your husband calls you mother, the romance of life is over. So we called you after my mother. Her maiden name was Emily Bird. Your mother thought Emily the prettiest name in the world. It was quaint and dark and beautiful, she said. Emily, your mother was the sweetest woman ever made. His voice trembled and Emily snuggled close. I met her twelve years ago when I was a sub-editor of The Enterprise up in Charlottestown and she was in her last year at Queen's. She was tall and fair and blue-eyed. She looked a little like your Aunt Laura, but Laura was never so pretty. Their eyes were very much alike, and their voice. She was one of the Murrays from Blairwater. I've never told you much about your mother's people, Emily. They live up on the old north shore at Blairwater, on New Moon Farm. Always have lived there since the first Murray came out from the old country in 1790. The ship he came on was called the New Moon, and he named his farm after her. It's a nice name. The New Moon is such a pretty thing, said Emily, interested for a moment. There's been a Murray ever since at New Moon Farm. They're a proud family. The Murray pride is a byword along the North Shore. Well, they had some things to be proud of, that cannot be denied. But they carried it too far. Folks call them the chosen people up there. They increased and multiplied and scattered all over, but the old stock at New Moon Farm is pretty well run out. Only your aunts, Elizabeth and Laura, live there now, and their cousin, Jimmy Murray. They never married, could not find anyone good enough for a Murray, so it used to be said. Your Uncle Oliver and your Uncle Wallace lived in Summerside. Your Aunt Ruth in Shrewsbury and your great-aunt Nancy at Priest Pond. 
Priest Pond. That's an interesting name. Not a pretty name like New Moon and Blair Water, but interesting, said Emily. Feeling father's arm around her, the horror and momentarily shrunk away. For just a little while, she ceased to believe it. Douglas Starr tucked the dressing gown a little more closely around her, kissed her black head, and went on. Elizabeth and Laura and Wallace and Oliver and Ruth were all old Archibald Murray's children. His first wife was their mother. When he was sixty, he married again, a young slip of a girl, who died when your mother was born. Juliet was twenty years younger than her half-family, as she used to call them. She was very pretty and charming, and they all loved and petted her and were very proud of her. When she fell in love with me, a poor young journalist, with nothing in the world but his pen and his ambition, there was a family earthquake. The Murray pride couldn't tolerate the thing at all. I won't rake it all up, but things were said I could never forget or forgive. Your mother married me, Emily, and the New Moon people would have nothing more to do with her. Can you believe that? In spite of it, she was never sorry for marrying me. Emily put up her hand, patted her father's hollow cheek. Of course, she wouldn't be sorry. Of course she'd rather have you than all the Murrays of any kind of a moon. Father laughed a little, and there was just a note of triumph in his laugh. Yes, she seemed to feel that way about it, and we were so happy. Oh, Emilykin, there never were two happier people in the world. You were the child of that happiness. I remember the night you were born in the little house in Charlottetown. It was in May, and a west wind was blowing silvery clouds over the moon. There was a star or two here and there. In our tiny garden, everything we had was small, except our love and our happiness. It was dark and blossomy. I walked up and down the path between the beds of violets your mother had planted and prayed. The pale east was just beginning to glow like a rosy pearl when someone came and told me I had a little daughter. I went in and your mother, white and weak, smiled just that dear, slow wonderful smile I loved, and said, We've got the only baby of any importance in the world, dear. Just think of that. I wish people could remember from the very moment they're born, said Emily. It would be so very interesting. 
I dare say we'd have a lot of uncomfortable memories, said her father, laughing a little. It can't be very pleasant getting used to living. No pleasanter than getting used to stopping it. But you didn't seem to find it hard, for you were a good little wee kidlet, Emily. We had four more happy years, and then... Do you remember the time your mother died, Emily? <laughs>